Welcome to the Broken Pine Chart Podcast, episode 217. I'm your host, Eric Moore. Back with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Derek. And look, I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. What, like, you sound like you're a mile away, buddy. What's going on? <laughs> well, <laughs> right before we were going live, my really nice USB microphone uh, windows decided not to recognize it. So I'm plugged in with an old school, like, wired headset from an old iPhone. So it is what it is. That's great. That's great. I, You know, by the way, I don't know if you know this. Every time we do an episode... I search if the episode number is a prime number. I don't know why. I don't know why I do that, but I, I always do. And uh, I wasn't sure if 217 was a prime number. Sorry. Yeah, it was a prime number. It is not, by the way. It's divisible by 31 and 7, just in case you were worried about that. What would the audience you do with that information, Jay? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I, want, I want the audience to recognize that we're math experts and we think about things a little differently. And it's always about... What's going on with the numbers for me and you? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. That was a good pivot, right? Nice try. No, it no, it was. That, that was really good. Well, I tell you what, <laughs> is that the content and the if the content and the substance is good enough, the sound shouldn't shouldn't matter, and we'll get it going for next week. Who cares about the sound? I gotcha. You're right. Well, enough people do. Well, let's. What I do care about, Jay, is this week. I like to notice things that are just odd. And I see what I ran is everyone knows we talked about the three month, 10 year treasury curve. I ran the one month minus the three month treasury bill curve, meaning the one month yield minus the three month yield. And Jay, going back to 2001, it's really wide. And what does this mean? It means that the three month treasury bill yield is about 1.3% higher than the one month bill. That's really wide. That, is, that actually is really wide. Like you'd think those would be much closer, uh, you know, take one month risk versus three month risk, right? You'd think they'd be much, much closer. And uh, to see this one over one, one and a quarter, one and a, quarter, one and a half percent spread is definitely interesting. And in all fairness, like you just thought of this and I'm looking at it, nobody's talking about this. And, you know, I'm looking back in history when it was kind of wide, like maybe 75 bips. And it was like the 07, 08 era, wasn't it? But besides that, I don't see it being this wide in the history back, you know, to 2001 ever. Well, it hasn't. It hasn't. And the reason why I pulled this up is I was talking to somebody and we were just going through a few things and I mentioned the overnight reverse repo market. And right now, Jay, you're saying, oh no, did I fall into Derek's trap? Did he and and they, they stayed on the phone with you after you brought that up? <laughs> well, what's interesting though is, so I'll give you the, the one minute version of this, even less, 30 second version of this. The Federal Reserve is using about $2.3 trillion of overnight uh, repurchase, uh, reverse repurchase agreements. What that means is the Fed, so money market funds can't just hold their, their uh, everything in cash. They got to invest in something. 
And normally what they would do is they'd go into the shortest of the short end of the curve, meaning like, you know, a month and in. And they would invest in that, that collateral, that paper. Well, what's happened is there's, so, there's not enough really low duration bonds for all the appetite of, of money market funds. And the reason why that matters is back in early 2021, rates were going negative in the very short end of the curve. And rates were outside or below the Fed funds uh, rate. And today, when you know bills one month are a little above 3%, they are outside the Fed funds range. The Fed doesn't necessarily like that. But that's, that's why they're using the overnight reverse repos because they can offer a rate on those for money markets to go into something else. And this is just a way of saying, I think the reason why this is getting skewed is because people are putting more money into money markets. There's more demand for short paper and or reverse repos. And at the same time, you and I touched on it last week, there's the debt ceiling coming up. And I don't think the Treasury is really able to issue a lot of short-term or any paper right now. I, I don't know that for certain. I think they've still had some auctions. But that's why you're getting this disjointed thing. And I bring this up because I think that's the reason. The other part I want to bring up is I believe you'll start to see some scary stuff pop up. Like somebody's going to pick this up and go on CNBC. We've never seen this. What's going on here? I think that's what's going on, Jay. You know, like as a reference, I just, I looked, so right now it's uh, uh, April 21st as we're recording this. So I'm looking at that data. When I go back, you know, just two weeks ago to the 10th and I look at this same data, the difference was about 50 basis points. This is really extreme today, Derek. I think, I think you stumbled on something really interesting. Maybe not stumbled. I know you don't stumble. You're very deliberate and you monitor. So I don't want you to think that the wrong way. But there absolutely there is, uh, I mean, could this be an inventory problem, as you suggest, in the one month treasury? Well, I think I think it has been. I think since the beginning of 2001, Jay, when the Fed started using those. So an overnight reverse repo, reverse repo. Yeah, but I just mean the last two weeks, dude, like this is a big move in two weeks. Yeah, no, I think it's an, an inventory. I mean, there's not enough. There's not enough of these bonds based upon the demand. And we know that people have been moving money out of banks into money market funds. And at the same time, I don't think there's been a lot of issuance from the treasury. So I know, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. This, this is all kind of, is it fair to say that this kind of a dynamic is kind of the un, oh, sorry, we got the market closing bell ringing on me in the background there, sorry. Um, this is kind of all one of the, you know, unforeseen but eventually explainable uh, symptoms of a higher for longer, you know, rapid increasing rate, pro, uh, uh, you know, program that the Fed is implementing, right? Could this just be one of the many little symptoms that are going to just start popping up? I think it's 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 been popped up. It's been. I think this is really extreme, though. But it goes back to, you know, the Fed is setting the Fed funds rate. But there's so much market demand, and the more demand you have, the more people buy an asset. The low, you know, in this case, the lower yields go. Bond prices go up, yields go down. And I think you're right. I mean, if the, the one month is yielding 3.4 percent, Fed funds is four and three quarters to five. Am I am I right with those numbers? 
That's right. So right now you'd say, well, why would you go buy a one month bond if the Fed funds rate? And I'd say, ah, okay. Not everybody can access the overnight reverse repo market. And if you're a money market fund, you've got to put cash somewhere. This is what you're you're going into. And then plus you have all these people, you know, buying short duration papers. So there's a lot, there's an undersupply. The two month is over five. Like I know, like this is a little baffling, right? Those all right, gotcha. Is it is you think it's a debt ceiling? You think it's a debt ceiling discussion? Is that really what it is, right? Because is that what that's within two months? Am I right about that? Um, yeah, I'm looking to see here. I thought August is when we we're going to run into problems. But this is saying, to me, this indicates that maybe it's sooner. I mean, there's still auctions. For example, there was a 13-week auction uh, for month. It's going off Monday. They just announced it today. It's $57 billion. There's a 26-week auction, you know, also on Monday. That's going to be about 48 billion. So, you know, there's auctions coming up. Like they're still issuing paper, but I think it just goes. All right, let me simplify this. When people want to rip money out of a bank account and put it into a money market fund, that money market fund has to put money somewhere. They can't remain in cash, so they got to go find assets. And they're not going to use any duration in those assets. They're, I mean, sure, there are money funds that might do that. But your typical money market fund is, is on the shortest end of the shortest end of the curve. It's near money, and they want to get a little bit of yield for parking the money. I think there's too, few do- too many dollars chasing few, too few assets. And this is a reflection of this. And I'm actually surprised the overnight repo market hasn't grown more. Uh, but it's been pretty stable, about two point three trillion. Jay, I don't know what this means of anything, but it's odd. It's it's extremely odd. And by the way, I just went to look at like an actual bond price in our uh, in our trading platform, and the one month, right? So if I look at the you know May eighteenth is three point two percent. That's the yield to maturity for the one month. So it's even worse than what you than what we're talking about here. So it's gotten even this. Divergence has increased even from yesterday's close to today. It's odd. And, you know, I, don't, I know I should say I know. I believe that the Fed does not like it when these types of assets are ye- giving off a yield that is outside the range of their Fed funds range. Because really, these should all be right around the Fed funds, but they're not. And, and this isn't the first time we've seen this. Um, Fed, this type of the really short term paper pretty much is going to have a negative yield to maturity. We're going to have negative rates there. And the Fed started doing these repos. And, the, and they do the repos. So the repos, they might offer an overnight annualized rate of something like, you know, 475. I, I didn't grab the, the repo rate. So JP Morgan, or let's say Morgan Stanley has a money fund. And they say, okay, I can go into one month bonds at three and something, or I can do the overnight reverse, reverse repurchase agreements. And that has been a, a relief valve for a lot of this money. But banks have to be approved. Um, they also have to be approved up to a certain amount. I didn't prepare and go to the New York Fed and pull up the list. Uh, so I think maybe the Fed will raise the, the ceiling on how much these institutions can put into uh, overnight reverse repurchase agreements. Maybe they'll include more banks in these. I don't know. It's odd, though, Jay. 
it's odd. Yeah, and look, I mean, it also tells you that maybe there's too many, you know, people run into this party of getting out of their, you know, checking and savings that's paying them 0.1% and running somewhere that they think they can get 4%. I mean, eventually, if enough money flows in there, that rate has to drop. Uh, maybe that's part of the reaction. I mean, there was some news this past week about, you know, the Apple card, right? Goldman, if you have the Goldman card, Apple's going to pay you 4% on dollars you put in that. Again, I'm sorry, I don't know all the details. Did you catch this story uh, earlier this week? I did. So basically, if you have the, the Apple credit card, which I do, Jay, because I, I buy Apple products and you get cash back and stuff like that. So uh, I haven't looked at it, but basically, if you have the Apple card, which is run by, you know, white labeled by Goldman Sachs, you can use a savings account. And I think it's four and an eighth right now is the annual return on that. So, yeah. Now, if you're a huge money. F- I mean, there's stuff like that that I think could drive this kind of reaction, right? I would think so. And I would think a lot of people, are, you know, there are Google's. I, I didn't put in this week's, uh, you know, doc for you and I to, to, to cover but I saw a chart of Google searches for how do I buy a U.S. Treasury, and and it's not surprising because people are like, oh, I have money in a in a bank account and they're still paying me nothing, or I can buy Treasuries, but I don't know how to do it. But and of course we know Jay, you and I, we have some clients, and you know there's some institutions that uh, we actually build Treasury portfolios for. You know we've done that, but yeah, and, and actually probably we've seen more rotation into that. Besides some of the, you know, more uh, exotic strategies we're running, we've seen a lot of folks run into that. And the general idea is, hey, if I want to sit out a little bit on the sidelines, but I know cash is probably not the right place to go, I need someone to invest my money into treasuries. And so we've seen that kind of uh, adoption, Derek, right, with definitely some of our clients, for sure. And we do, I think we're kind of doing it all the time at this point. Probably we do at least one account every day like that. So and they're not dropping out of the market. They're moving money into an account that they weren't getting paid anything on somewhere else. Yeah. And and by the way, I mean, you, you can buy through Treasury Direct Treasury bonds directly from the federal government. Uh, I've never actually done it. My understanding is it's not the, the best website in the world. And go figure, it's a government run website, right? Um, can I say that? We'll, <laughs> so we'll they should anatomy, just call but, you instead, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like we look at the whole inventory. By the way, we're not coming on here like pitch people to, to you know, have us invest no. in treasury. You, if you want to. No, that was not the But intent. I mean, it, it's there. there is value in like looking at the, like we can pull up the institutional level inventory. We see all the bonds that are available, all the rates. And it's not just ones at auction. There's, there's secondary ones. But that, Jay, did you see, I saw this thing going around and I, Guess somebody went to an ATM and the person in front of them or somebody in front of them must have left the receipt there and it showed the balance. So this guy, what he's, he's in his car and he just shows, he, he takes a video and puts it on TikTok of the receipt. And his main point was, why does this person have half a million dollars sitting in a bank account? Like, what are you doing? You're earning nothing in that, you know? Um, anyway, all right, Jay, I think we've beaten this enough. Have we? Okay. Good point. Thanks for bringing this one up. This will be fun to watch, Derek. Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about is just uh, Bloomberg had a chart and it had uh, U.S. money growth year over year. So M2 and versus the M2 level. And one of the things you see is that M2 growth, so the, the money supply growth, 
year over year is negative. And a lot of people are making a big deal about that. And I think it's fair to say that when you see money supply shrinking, usually that that does put some pressure on the economy. But I think the point of showing this is it's growth is falling, but there's still an awful lot in circulation. That's actually what Bloomberg had on there. <laughs> that was what they said, flows versus stocks. U.S. money growth is falling, but there's still an awful lot in circulation. Jay, money supply is still really big, despite it shrinking year over year. Yeah, but we talked about that uh, in 2020 and 2021, a lot about the money supply and in relation to the velocity of money. And I know you haven't brought, you know, we don't have any data to talk about that right now. But the, the point is, right, when there's less money uh, out there, I mean, this is what this this makes sense with tightening, right? I mean, is are we not, isn't this kind of what the Fed is trying to do? Right? Yes. That it just, yes. Well, okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so they're trying to do this, right? They're not, the free money days are over, right? So. Well, it's going to cost happens. you more. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the, uh, so I don't think there's, there's too much to say on this. It just, yeah. I mean, I think it would be, it would take a lot for the money, the M2 money supply to really contract in a very, very meaningful way, just in a raw dollars. Um, but if the Fed keeps its its tightening posture, I would expect this to, to shrink a little bit. And you, when you see money supply shrinking. So listen, Professor Derek, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So the types of accounts that are included in the M2 money supply number, you want to kind of let us know? Yeah. Okay. So basically it's, it's cash, but it's cat, like stuff that's in checking accounts. Um, and it's things that can be easily, you know, switched into cash. Like um, I think CDs are in there. Savings, savings accounts, by the way, are now in M2 because savings accounts are pretty accessible, but it's, it's just checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs, that type of stuff, Jay. Listen, I, and, and I, I deliberately brought that up to see if I could circle it back to our first point. I mean, could this be an exit out of banks and checking accounts and savings accounts uh, into treasury type positions? I didn't. I know that was not your intention to connect these dots, but couldn't this be a because treasury holdings are not included in M two, right? Um, like no. a brokerage account balance, no, treasury balance is not so. included. No, right? I don't think so. I don't think it is. Yeah, because, I mean, M- M1 is currency outside the Treasury, uh, well, Federal Reserve Banks and vaults and depository, demand deposits to commercial banks. No, I don't. I, that would probably be an M3. M3, do they still have that? I don't even know if they still show that. But, yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, money's coming out of, out of banks, I think, is your point. I think it's a, it's a smart point to make. There is. Money's coming out of banks, and it could be flowing. Tra- it's flowing somewhere. Right. And it's coming out of the supply uh, of where, you know, typically it, it resides. I mean, that, that's kind of the point I'm making. Well, and, and this also gets to uh, Bloomberg. Um, who put this? Lizanne Saunders, I think, tweeted this out. She's the chief strategist at Charles Schwab. Uh, this is the money market fund assets weekly change. So this is the, the flows in and out of money market funds. And last week, or I guess it's this week or last week. I don't know if this was this week was the first, uh, it, a lot of money came out of money market funds. And I don't know if it's just 
You know, is that being reinvested into the market somewhere? But if you could see this chart, what you would see is there's been one, I'd call it six, seven weeks where a pretty substantial amount of money was going into money market funds. And it's the highest it's been since we go back to March of 2020. And typically when you see a lot of money going into money market funds, it could be coming out of the market and going into money market funds. So you get out of stocks, you go into cash and cash gets swept into money market funds, depending upon the institution. Or it could be getting out of banks and going into money market funds or going into money market funds in a bank. Like Schwab, I think Schwab's CEO was on, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And he even said, you know, we've been telling people to go into their sweet money market fund. Like they have something called a value advantage, which you have to buy into. It's a mutual fund, not a recommendation, but, you know, it's, it's different than just sweeping the cash to the bank side. And they've been telling, I think, their clients to do that because the rates are higher. So, um, yeah, Jay, I think this ties back well. I don't think we need to beat this up anymore on uh, money market funds, right? So, yeah, the, yep, I'm with you. I think, look, this is all interesting to see where the money flows. Um, the old adage, follow the money, is exactly what the Fed is trying to figure out how to, uh, how to manage that, right? So we shall see. I don't, I don't know if I'm being nice or mean to the Fed today. I don't know if I have necessarily an opinion, but this is, you know, again, one of those, I think, symptoms of, uh, of what they've created here and uh, with the rapid raising rates. I will not play the clip, nor will I link to it in the show notes, but a clip is going out there where I guess they used artificial intelligence where they have Jay Powell's press conference, but then they superimpose what sounds like Jay Powell reading Reddit threads from Wall Street bets. And you can imagine what those sound like. So. Yeah, it's a nice little deep fake. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I want to get to, link to that in the show notes. <laughs> you know, that will not be linked to in the show notes. So I want to talk about volatility a little bit. And, you know, this is really our world. I did want to mention to you and I, and I'll link to the episode you and I did, where people are making a big deal about the zero DTE options, which is basically options that are expiring today or any day that you have expiring options. And the S&P has a lot of those. Jay, I think next week it was announced that uh, there's going to be a one-day VIX index that the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, CBOE, is putting up. They already have a nine-day VIX and, of course, the regular VIX, which is 30 days. So, all right, I don't know. Does this, like some people have been saying the VIX is broken. Is this, does this make people happy? Does, do we care? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, so DTE stands for days to expiration, right? So zero DTE options or the options that expire that day. And, of course, uh, those are always going to have a lot of volume. And the reason why I think you're bringing that up is because the volume in those uh, zero TTE options or same day expiring options, you and I would call them, you know, today's options, right? Uh, it's it's one of those things that if, if you throw a VIX index on it, it maybe kind of tells you, you know, how expensive and speculative those options are. You know, everybody calls the VIX, I'm sorry, soapbox time for a second. Everybody calls the VIX the fear index. You know, I do not. I don't think you like to call it that either. It's an index of more of the expense of the options, right? The the increase in cost. It's a speculative reflection, uh, up or down. Speculative does not have to mean up. It could be speculating on a down move. Uh, and that is more what the VIX represents. It means it tells you that there's more, uh, the options are generally more expensive. There's more implied volatility 
in the calculation or the numbers of an option uh, than before when the VIX goes up and vice versa. Actually, you know, I didn't know, you know, if you wanted to bring up the fact that the VIX, you know, this week closed below, you know, I think 17 for the first time in 15 months. Right. So we had a close down at uh, I'm just going to pick the low here right on the 19th where we closed at 16.46. Now, that's just what the VIX calculation says, right? It's a calculation on the S&P options. So that we haven't seen that level for quite a while, 15, 16, 17 months. Um, does it feel like people are expecting no volatility? No, right? So it's, you know, it's interesting to watch the, you know, the narrative that's going on and the narrative we have with clients versus what the market is actually telling you uh, the pricing reflects. So there's a lot going on with the VIX. I don't think the VIX is broken at all. I don't know why we need a one-day VIX, but I think if you're going to do zero DTE options, then sure, you should know if you should be buying or selling because they're expensive or cheap. I mean, to me, that's the only use I could really think of. Do you have a different a different idea on how to use it? I mean, how to use the one-day VIX? Yeah. I mean, what do we, you have do with that? we have a nine-day VIX. We have a nine-day VIX. Does, we have a does anybody VIX. know we have a nine day VIX? It's been around for probably a while. Probably not. Probably not. Don't we have one in between? Don't we have uh, we have like a ninety day VIX too? I mean the 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 thirty day VIX, the VIX is a thirty day VIX. Okay, it's it's what is it's the expectation. It looks at the option chain. It's a weighted average. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll bore everybody if I if I tell you how to calculate it. But it's doing what it said it will do. And the nine day VIX, when things get really volatile. You would expect the nine-day VIX to be maybe above the 30-day VIX. And I'm sure the one-day VIX when things get crazy. Because most of, I mean, without going down a rabbit hole here, it's like if you have a, an option that is expiring today, so you, you open the market and uh, it's going to expire that day. If it is out of the money, you have no intrinsic value. All of that is the volatility component of it. There's no, there's no time left. It's all volatility and probability of where it's going to go. So like if you have a, if we have a March 2020 type crazy day where the market's down 10%, of course the one day VIX is going to be higher. Of course it is because it's happening right now. So I don't know. I, I think it'll be interesting. And, you know, I mean, but this, this isn't the, the substitute for the normal VIX. Like, I don't think the VIX is broken. I think it's doing what it says it's going to do. And do I really think that huge institutions, instead of just building portfolios and having protection via hedges, they're not using options every day. They're not using options that expire that day every day and just rolling them one after another. So I don't know, Jay. I don't, I don't know if this is a big deal. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. It is a little interesting and, and full disclosure here, Derek, right? There are some things that you and I look at where we will look at shorter term volatility compared to longer term volatility, right? We may look at the IV of a 10 day option versus a 30 day option. Um, I mean, like you said, there's been a nine day VIX out there for a while. It's fine. Um, I mean, there is something to infer from the you know difference in pricing of near-term, mid-term, long-term options and the disposition of the market, right? We've, we've used data to gather insights on that without going into more details than that. It's something that 
factors into the way we will run some of our strategies, whether we're long or short volatility at different times. So I listen, I don't think it's worthless information, right? I don't think you think it's worthless. I'm just, you know, I, I, I you know, look, the CBO's put out a lot of innovative products over the time, and, and certainly a lot of them are, are useful. We'll see if this one turns out to be useful. I'm, I'm a fan of it, and I think it will really, for some of the, the people who th- who open Robinhood accounts, can I pick on them for a second? Yeah, I'm going to do that. Sure. So for the people who, you know, are brand new to trading and say, I'm going to go trade these options that are expiring the same day, and maybe it will help to educate them on, on how much implied volatility, how much juice you're actually paying for those, given given where they are in relation to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't my main point, Jay, is this one day VIX is not going to supplant the normal traditional VIX. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about what the VIX was telling us and the pricing of the VIX either. Is that something that's of interest to you to bring out today? You mean where we are currently or just in general what the 30-day VIX is telling us? Uh, no, currently. Like where we are, you know, currently and, you know, what and, – and I thought – Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I – you teased it a little bit. And, you know, we saw an elevated VIX remain elevated for a long time, 2008, 2009. You know, it, it was elevated for a long time. It was above 20 for a long time. We've seen it elevated since March of 20. Post-December of 18, like we didn't see it elevated for a long time. So it's not surprising to me that it remained elevated. But I got to admit, I'm surprised it's it's recessed or declined as much as it had. You mentioned it, it was under 17, first time in well over a year. As afraid as people would make you seem watching CNBC, how is the VIX this low? I think is, is the way I would phrase it, Jay. So I'll, I'll pose that question to you. There's a disconnect here. Look, I I think um, I think while the VIX, which is an equation, the VIX index is low, the futures market might tell you something a little different, uh, right? If you actually want to trade the VIX, or you can't go buy the VIX, right? It's not an asset that you can buy. Uh, you have to go in the futures or the options market. That does not look as complacent. I'll use that word. As what the uh, what the the uh, the VIX index itself is indicating, I I think, you know I I um, look it's it's one of those things that we may look back and t- say that you know the market in the month of March and April you know after the the March wiggle with the banking situation um, has been kind of cr- climbing a wall of worry. It feels like that, Derek. Right, market just kind of bleeds higher a little bit, a lot of days. And, uh, you know, when there's no news, it's a push higher, right? Which, by the way, typically happens when the market, you know, is trading above its 200-day moving average. Again, not a recommendation, but just technically speaking, this is kind of how things move in general. And so I think the VIX is just a reflective of the lack of large movements each and every day. Um, A VIX of 16 generally tells us that, what? It tells us the market will move 1%, you know, we expect it to move 1%, 68% of the time when the VIX is 16, the market moves 1% uh, uh, around 1%. And so, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, have you, when's the last time we had a, a 3% day up or down? 
I don't know the answer to that, but it's been a while, right? And so having a VIX uh, at 16 would tell us, yeah, you should expect a 1% move each day. I mean, that's generally the way you and I interpret the VIX as to what to expect within the portfolios. I mean, anything you want to add to that? Because I know that's a, a number you uh, you use as well. Yeah, and, it, you know, that I think that's right. I mean, it, your, your expectation is plus or minus 1%. And then as you go out, it's... If you were go go out forty nine days and you had a VIX at sixteen, you'd say, okay, the square root of forty nine is seven, and if a VIX at sixteen, you're pretty much expecting a seven percent plus or minus one standard deviation move between today and day forty nine. You know that's kind of the way you look at it. But yeah, I mean, I, I just the other thing too is we are this front end, and so the as you said, the VIX futures have a bunch of different months. When you see the VIX on TV, it's called the spot VIX. You cannot trade that. And there's there's reasons why you can't trade it. When the VIX goes to 50, you know at some point it's going to come back down. So you could essentially short that or buy options on that. And you know at some point you're going to make money. It would be free money. But there's no free lunch on Wall Street. And so the options trade off the VIX futures and you can trade VIX futures. Jay and I are not suggesting you do either of those things. Uh, either or both of those things. But I think it's the point <laughs> We've of, got our own little uh, horror stories <laughs> and bloodbaths on trading VIX options, right? Yeah, we call it paying intuition. But I look at the term structure of the VIX futures right now. The May contract is about 19.67. And it's a normal curve, meaning as you go out each month, you know, I go out to September, it's 23.83. And that may not mean anything to you, but I think that's still pretty high. In fact, I went back to, let's see, April, uh, what are we, the 21st? Okay. Interestingly enough, April 21st of 2017 was also a Friday. Don't know why I care about that, but I just think that's interesting. I picked 2017. And 2017, the near month was 14.32. And you go out, you know, 120 days, it's 15.17. My point of showing you these numbers is that it's still elevated, Jay, even if the short, the spot has come down. So it seems like the market through the futures contracts with VIX is still anticipating some bumpiness, I would say. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, if you can read a chart, you would look at it and be like, huh, the market is the VIX has spent a lot of time above the level that it is today. And I think the futures trader, know, the, the futures market knows that as well. Hence, it costs you more uh, to go out in time to predict a spike in the VIX. And, uh, you know, that's why if, if you thought, hey, let me just, you know, the, the odds are, uh, this is what you thought, I'm not saying this, but if you thought the odds were that the VIX is going to go up from this 16, 17 level that we're looking at right now, uh, then, and you went out and said, listen, I'll just, I'll take that bet for two months, you'd have to get over like a 23 in the VIX to break even. Right. That's kind of what the futures market is telling you that you, you know, you're not the only one uh, that may think that. And so guess what? It starts to reflect itself in the price of those futures and those options. And so, yeah, so the break even on a, you know, July contract is what, 23? I'm, I'm actually looking at the options right now on it. And I. And, and why Jay is doing that is eventually the spot price and the futures price, when they get, when the future has, 
really no time to expire or at expiration, they grab, they'll gravitate towards one another. And the question is, does the spot go to the future or the future go to the spot or they meet somewhere in the middle? But that's why Jay is, is doing that calculation right now on a break even, because if you buy it at 23.8 and you come back all the way to expiration of that option, the spot VIX and the future should be around one another. So, so yeah, I mean, you're, if, if you think, yeah, I, I know what you're saying there, Jay. Yep. Yeah. So it just, you know, interesting. I will actually, if we're going to talk about the VIX, I'd like to, you know, do a little pivot to the, uh, should I not go to the VIX, which is a volatility indicator on the oh, VIX options not? themselves? Why not? Why not? <laughs> why why not? On a, all right. So this is an interesting index that you and I like to look at um, for the fact that um, it tells you the implied volatility of the VIX options. In other words, it tells you how expensive the options are with on the VIX itself, right? So a spike in the VIX tells you that VIX options are more expensive and a dip tells you that they're cheap. And despite the VIX coming down in value, the VIX has been on, a, on the rise since the 17th of April. So watch that because what that does is it tells you that the VIX traders are willing to speculate on a, on a move by paying more for the options, up or down, probably buying calls, which probably means VIX up, which probably means market down. That's all that I'm interpreting the data, not making a market call on that. But when you when you look at a spiking VIX, it tells you that VIX traders are willing to pay up, pay more of a premium uh, on uh, uh, on taking a position in the VIX itself. So it's just another indicator that you know we kind of keep an eye. And if you've never looked at the VVIX, uh, it's it's not an ETF; it's an index like the VIX. It's another SIBO product. Interesting thing to take a look at. Derek and I have found some uh, definite interesting uh, patterns within that VVIX as well. So again, just food for thought, trying to share a little extra info on that. Just looking at a chart on the, on the VVIX, and you know it hasn't been around as long as the VIX, but March 20th of 2020, which is probably the height of the craziness in the uh, in you know the sell-off back then. I think we can say COVID now, Jay. I don't know. That you think you can? Spotify, get, like, Spotify I don't know. Spotify gave out. me like, yeah, they gave me the the blue the blue disclaimer when we mentioned just we just mentioned the word and they get so we'll see let's let's try it out. But yeah, the COVID sell off in in March of March twentieth, twenty twenty, the VIX got to one sixty eight point seven one. Today at the close, it went ninety six point nine four, and what that means is the premium that was being, I don't want to say charged, but you know the options prices reflected a very high premium relative to normal. And so if you wanted to speculate and buy VIX options, which of course are on the VIX future, not the spot, VVIX was saying they were really, really expensive. So yeah, I mean, I, I love looking at VVIX and no one really ever talks about it. And it's, it's not, you know, you might think that, well, when the VIX is low, the VIX has to be really high because, you know, oh, the VIX is going to go up. No, no, not the case. Like 2017, the VIX wasn't, you know, it had a few spikes, but it was relatively the same as where it is right now. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. You and I like to, to always say that the volatility markets leave a lot of breadcrumbs and a lot of clues about the equity markets because it's, it's real money that people are putting into these, and it's it's the dealers that are 
that are making markets on it. So yeah, Jay, I like to watch the VVIX a lot and I think it's an underutilized uh, financial piece. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, as options guys, we do watch that. So sorry I took us down that rabbit hole. It's all right. It's all right. It's our show. We can do whatever we want on it. You know, we can use all bad right. mics. We use good mics, you know, as long as people listen. That's the key. <laughs> all right, Jay. Um, let's, I'm trying to think if we have anything. Let's let's go to our recommendations for the week, Jay. Do you have any? Uh, yes, uh, I do. Uh, I started watching the final season of uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel. And, uh, you know, it's one of those... It's one of Prime's first kind of their own uh, series. I don't know if you ever watched it. It's about a, a, no. a female comedian in the '60s, and uh, it's just it's 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 just a well put together show. It's pretty. It's critically acclaimed. If if you didn't know that the new season, final season, is out, then uh, there you go. If not, uh, I think I think you'll enjoy it. So it's you know it's it's not the most. Uh, it's a good you know. Uh, family, you know, husband and wife show that you can watch or, you know, you and your significant other can watch together. I think, uh, I think Mike was on, I actually gave out a, a prime show. It was Daisy Jones and the six. We really liked my wife and I both liked that a lot. We thought it was good. So I'll, I'll prep that one since she talked about Amazon prime. I have not heard of this one. So I may have to, I may have to check that one out. Really? This was like their first, you know, you know, big one that they that they tried out in the uh, where they were. It was their production. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, I don't know how many. It's probably six years since the first season. So, um, yeah, you should take a look at it. I think you'll like it, Derek. All right, I will check it out. the The other thing I'm curious about. I don't know if you saw Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus has the story about Tetris. There's a new movie out, or maybe it's a a, a season. I, I saw it. I, I didn't watch it. I saw that Apple had produced it. Is it a series or is it a movie? I don't know. Are you a Tetris fan? That's the question I really have for you. I mean, who hasn't played Tetris? <laughs> right. It's on our, isn't it on, still on our trading platform? I don't know. I don't, I don't have it open right now. Didn't they used to have Tetris on there? I, th I think it was. I think I do not think it is any longer in the trading platform. All right. Well, they should put it back. All right. Well, there, there's two. And by the way, if you're not watching Succession, what's wrong with you at this point, right? Oh, my gosh. Please. Please watch it. Can't can't give anything away. It's four episodes in. I will say, you know, I, I've told you this before. I did not watch Game of Thrones. You were watching it the entire time. And so I got the benefit of watching, what was it, seven seasons all at once, which is fantastic. It's like, you know, the Yeah, you didn't understand how you can and then you had to wait for the last season like all of us. How do you wait? There are periods of time where we were, we were waiting over a year between seasons. It was it was all it was torture. Think about the season finales. And I'm watching it on HBO and I watched this great season cliffhanger. And it's like, would you like to watch the next next episode? Yeah, I would like to find out what happened right now. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. It's fantastic. Right, right. So I I um I envy the people who have not watched Succession and could just binge it episode after episode. So uh, I will give out one more, and that's uh, it's it's not new, but True Detective with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. If you haven't watched that on on HBO, I thought that was it's a single season. Yeah, it's an old one. I mean, how how old is that? It's got to be seven years ago, right? But how good was that? That was really good. It was good. It was a good one. 
That's a good one. All right, Jay. I think uh, they've got the recommendations. They're going to watch VVIX and VIX. And we're going to watch the one month and three month because it may mean nothing. It might just be something that geeks like me who run these numbers all the time look at. But, you know, we've been early on stuff, Jay. Remember we said the discount window is being used. And then lo and behold, two months later, we saw some banks fail. So a lot of times we're early on stuff. Right, listen, I can take zero credit for that, my friend. That was all you. It was just weird. I was like, there's no bars, no bars. And then you see on a bar chart, all of a sudden there's a bar. Banks borrowing from the discount window. Huh, what's that? Why, why is that happening? I don't know. We'll find out. There are other bars. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and more bars and bigger bars. So, all right, Jay, thanks again for coming on. And uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Take care.